This morning, I simply want to invite everyone here. My invitation today for each one of us is simply to stoop. Now, that might <laughs> sound like a strange invitation, but that's exactly what I want to invite each of us to do, to stoop, to stoop low. In our world, we find that type of thing hard to accept, that type of thing hard to actually do. In his book, Game On, The All-American Race to Make Champions of Our Children, Tom Ferry, uh, writing about the excessive pressure that parents put on their kids to succeed, says, he writes this, there are 12-year-olds driving race cars, there are 11-year-olds who are turning pro in skateboarding, Nine-year-olds hire professional coaches. Eight-year-olds play 75 baseball games a year. Seven-year-olds vie for powerlifting medals. Six-year-olds have personal trainers. Five-year-olds play soccer year-round. Four-year-old tumblers compete in AAU Junior Olympics. Three-year-olds enter their third-year swimming lessons. And two-year-olds have custom golf clubs. Then he continues, he says, just for the kicks, to get a sense of where, we're all, where all of this might be headed, I flew to Australia, he writes, I, I flew to Australia with a cheek swab from one, my one-year-old son, Kellen, to get his DNA tested by a company that uses genetic analysis to recommend specific sports. Guess what? My baby has the right stuff for one of those Winter Olympic events. <laughs> In our modern-day society, this drive for success, this drive for achievement, I got to tell you, it doesn't just leak down to our children. <laughs> it starts with us, parents, grandparents. Years ago, I saw a bumper sticker on a Volkswagen Bug. Remember those cars, those Volkswagen Bugs? I, I saw a, bu a bumper sticker on a little Bug that said, when I grow up, I'd like to be a Cadillac, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's ambition, right? I mean, but that's us. General George Patton famously remarked once, Americans love a winner. winner. Americans will not tolerate a loser. <laughs> and of course, we have uh, a famous quote from uh, the Green Bay Packers, you know, legendary coach Vince Lombardi, who once said, show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. We all want to be on a winning team, don't we? We all want to have success. And I got to make a confession to you. As pastors, pastors were no different than anyone else. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember when I first got into the ministry as a youth pastor, I mean, ages ago, centuries ago. I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but I had two goals at that time. I remember distinctly, um, one was to have the largest youth group uh, one of the largest youth groups in the country. Um, and the second was to be a national conference uh, youth speaker. Um, uh, <laughs> thank goodness neither of those goals w was realized. Uh, you know, I am so thankful that God just <laughs> nicks that in the bud right away. And while it's not wrong per se for any of us to have goals or for any of us to have ambitions that drive us, I mean, after all, Jesus did speak about talents, Right? We do need to realize that our ambitions and our drive to succeed so oftentimes can become misplaced and uh, misdirected. 
So this morning, what I want to talk to you about is a surprising secret, uh, the surprising secret of being successful for God. And I want to suggest to you right up front that the secret to being useful to God is inadequacy. You heard that right. (laughs) Inadequacy. I mean, think about it. I mean, we find that secret, don't we, taught throughout scriptures? You go back to the Old Testament, where you will find um, stories of God using the most inadequate and unlikely people. (laughs) People like Gideon, who was the, the least in his family. Or Saul, um, who came from the humblest of clans. Or even David, right? David, who was overlooked by uh, the prophet Samuel uh, uh, until he got to the end of the whole family line. And then finally, uh, Samuel had to ask Jesse, David's father, I mean, isn't there another one? Don't you have another son somewhere? You come to the New Testament, you think of Jesus' words, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Or when Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Save it. See, God uses those who are inadequate. Of course, we can go to the Apostle Paul and his words, Um, remember how uh, Paul was introduced to us at the very beginning in the book of Acts he is introduced to us as what the persecutor but then God got a hold of him changed his name from Saul to Paul and what God ended up using him as the persecuted you think about Paul as he talks about the task that God had given him and he talks about this in uh, 1 Corinthians, the, letter to the, the first letter he wrote to the Corinthians. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was the one that gave the growth. I mean, there's no sense of self-promotion or, or boasting. And when challenged by his detractors, it isn't that <laughs> Paul couldn't go toe-to-toe with them in some type of debate. But instead, we find Paul over and over again boasting about his weaknesses, his inadequacies. And that's where we find him again this morning in our passage, openly admitting his inadequacies, his weaknesses. Turn with me once again, if you have your Bibles, to 2 Corinthians. We're in our series here in 2 Corinthians as we are walking through this fascinating, very personal pastoral book um, this, this letter that Paul wrote here. 2 Corinthians, we're in chapter 2. Now, as we have seen up to this point, let me give you a little background. As we've seen up to this point, Paul's enemies have criticized him for almost everything, including his change of plans. <laughs> Evidently, they had made the argument that, uh, well, Paul's ministry must not be uh, spirit-led um, because... I mean, if, if Paul was being spirit-led, then, then certainly he wouldn't be vacillating and he wouldn't be changing his mind all the time. So once again, Paul here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 spells out the reason for his change of plans. Look with me 
in verses 12 and 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now, remember, Paul has written a severe letter to this church here in Corinth. In fact, he refers to it back in chapter 2, verse 4 of this same, of this letter. Um, and that was a letter, severe letter. It was a letter of correction. It was a letter of, of, of rebuke. It, it called for their repentance. And he sent that letter uh, by way of his co-worker, his brother, Titus. In anticipation of then meeting with Titus and receiving word how this church of Corinth has responded to this severe letter, Paul then, what he does is he leaves Ephesus and he goes to Troas where they had agreed to meet up. And as Paul is waiting there in Troas, he continues on with his ministry and his ministry there Flourish. That's what he tells us here. We know that because Paul here uses the same metaphor, open door, in verse 12, as was used to describe his ministry that had taken place in Ephesus. Yet while his ministry in Troas was a huge success, I mean, <laughs> whatever he touched, it seemed to just uh, flourish, and people came to know Christ, and kept coming to know Christ. It flourished. It was a huge success. Paul suffered... At that same time, a tension. He, he suffered what might be called a pastoral anxiety. Literally, it says, his spirit had no rest. In other words, he was worried all about Titus, and he was worried about the response of these uh, Corinthian believers to his severe letter. Now, now I don't know if you realize this, but I, I relate to Paul's um, um, pastoral anxiety as the senior pastor here at, at First Free. I got to tell you. I mean, I worry a lot about all of you. <laughs> I worry about you. You're on my heart and you're on my mind. I mean, uh, uh, all the time. Um, I hear about your stories of, of, your, of your struggles. I hear about um, what you're going through and the difficulties you're facing. And, and I get all anxious <laughs> and concerned for you. I hear about you know, illnesses and, and sicknesses. I hear about job losses. I hear about relationship uh, you know, and, and difficulties. And, and I get worried. I get anxious. Many times, I got to tell you, honestly, I have woken up in the middle of the night and someone's story is on my mind and on my heart and I just lay in bed praying for you as your pastor. But I got to tell you, one of the great joys I have as your pastor is, is praying for you. And one of the great joys I have as your pastor is gathering together with a group on Wednesday night at our Zoom prayer meetings and we get to gather together and we get to pray for you and we get to pray for your concerns. We get to pray for this church. Let me, let me put a little plug in here, by the way. Um, we would love to have you join us for those Zoom prayer meetings um, on Wednesday nights. If you have any questions, you can call the church office. We'd love to have you join us. 
But Paul here, what he does is he has this pastoral anxiety and he opens up um, and and shares his heart with this this church. There's no pretense here. He's not trying to cover up uh, his, his weaknesses and his suffering by boasting about all of his successes. No, he's being honest. His anxiety is killing him. I mean, you can just imagine it, can't you? Every day, Paul uh, would, would make his way down to the docks there in Troas where the ships would be coming in, and, and, and he would ask, is, is Titus on this ship? And he'd wait and watch the ship unloaded, and no Titus. So he'd watch the next ship come in, and then the next ship, and the next ship. He'd be there to the end of the day till the last ship was unloaded, and still no Titus. Titus, where are you? Titus, what's going on? And his anxiety was killing him. And the next day, he would come back down to that, that dock. And once again, he'd go through the same process. Where is Titus? In fact, back in chapter 11, you'll find in this same book, chapter 11, verse 28, Paul describes this anxious worry as the crown of his most incredible suffering saying, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul's suffering is real. So finally, when he can stand it no longer, even though he's having success there in Troas, preaching the gospel, when he can stand it no longer, Paul says goodbye to them, and he heads to Macedonia. And even then, Paul tells us later on in chapter 7, verse 5, he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear from within. Paul here is being completely open and honest with this church. He's, He's admitting his inadequacy. You know, pride oftentimes... What pride does oftentimes is it prevents us from doing that sort of thing. <laughs> Have you ever received a gift um, that was hard to receive? Um, imagine for your birthday, you open a gift, a present from a friend, and it's a dieting book. <laughs> and then you unwrap another gift from a, another friend, and this book is titled Overcoming Selfishness. <laughs> and if you say to them, well, thank you so much, um, you're in a sense admitting, for indeed I am overweight, I am obnoxious, <laughs> aren't you? Oh, we have a hard time doing that sort of thing. We don't like to admit that we have flaws and we have weaknesses and we have inadequacies. But rather than hiding his weaknesses here, the Apostle Paul, it seems like he's almost uh, boasting about them. And before his opponents can even turn on him, uh, Paul, what he ends up doing is he thanks God for all of his suffering, for all of his anxiety, for all of his inadequacy, because through it all, God's power and God's presence are revealed. Look with me at the next verse, verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal uh, triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
There's two pictures here that uh, we really need to get a hold of so we can get an accurate idea of what Paul is talking about here. Um, the first picture is that of the triumphal procession. Okay? The triumphal procession was a lavish uh, parade conducted in Rome to celebrate great military victories. I mean, we don't have anything like that. I think the closest thing that we might have that today is something maybe like the Macy's Day Parade, you know, uh, in New York City at Thanksgiving or, um, or the Rose Parade in Pasadena, California to celebrate the, the new year. I mean, th those are big and they're glamorous and, and, and no expenses spared and everybody in the country knows about those big parades. Thousands of people are watching them, not only in person, but on television. Likewise, a Roman triumphal procession that was a major cultural and civic event. Everybody in the Roman Empire knew <laughs> about those parades. I mean, they were so well known, in fact, that they were depicted on Roman arches and on their coins and, and paintings. The triumphal parade featured the conquering general riding in a triumphal chariot that was drawn by four horses. The general was clothed in a purple toga with a tunic stitched with palm fronds. In his hand, he would carry a scepter that was crowned by an eagle, and his face would be tinted red in reference to the god of Jupiter. Although there was much theatrical pomp, the real purpose of that triumphal procession was to celebrate um, and elevate this victorious general and glorify this victorious general and to demonstrate once again Rome's greatness. Of course, in this parade, first of all, came the, the, the state officials and the Senate. And then came the trumpeters, you know, the marching bands, followed by the, the spoils of the war, that is, the, the captives, um, the kings and most important leaders from um, um, the enemy, the enemy who had been conquered, who are now presented as these conquered slaves. Then came the priests, swinging their uh, censers with sweet-smelling aromas burning in them. And finally, finally, there came the general himself. I mean, the highest honor that a Roman Caesar or a general could receive would be to lead one of those parades. Did you catch the picture? So what does Paul mean when he says here, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession. What's he mean? What's he talking about? I mean, my first thought, of course, was that Paul was speaking about our triumph in Christ. Um, that the idea that, that we share in Christ's triumph like a foot soldier walking alongside of the chariot in the, in the parade. But see, linguistically, that doesn't work. I want you to notice here what Paul says. He says, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. 
We are being led in this parade like one of the captives. We're not part of the conquering crowd. No, we're one of the conquered crowd. We're not walking in triumph, but we're walking as prisoners of war, as one of the slaves. And to make matters even worse, at the end of that Roman triumphal procession, the conquered enemies, those prisoners of war, were put to death as a sacrifice to the Roman gods. See, the role of those that were being led in the triumphal procession was to reveal the glory of the one who had conquered them. That was the purpose. So what Paul is doing here is Paul is describing his own life as that of the slave of Christ, as a captive of Christ, being led to death in Christ in order that he might display or reveal the majesty and power and glory of God, his conqueror. Let me try to give you a more updated picture um, of what Paul is kind of talking about here. I remember the day that I handed my daughter, uh, Hope, the keys to the car. Um, I mean, it was a scary day, okay? Um, Because now she was moving from the passenger seat into the driver's seat. Parents, you understand where I'm coming from, right? Um, In a big moment in your life, when you hand someone the keys, um, you know, that's a a huge, that's a huge time. It's scary. I mean, up to that time, I had been doing the driving, and I was able to choose the destination, and I was able to choose the route, and I was able to choose the speed, and you were, you were in the, the passenger seat. But listen, if we change seats, if now you're going to drive, I have to trust you. It's all about control, right? Whoever's in... The driver's seat is the person who's in control. (laughs) A lot of people find Jesus handy to have in the car as long as he stays in the passenger seat. Because, you know, something may come up where they require um, his services. Jesus, you know, I have a health problem. I I need some help here. (laughs) I want you in the car, but I'm not sure I, I really want you driving. But see, if Jesus is driving then I'm not in charge of my life anymore. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my ego anymore. I no longer have the right to satisfy every self-centered ambition. No, it's his agenda. It's his life. I get out of the driver's seat and I hand the keys over to him. Now, I'm fully engaged. In fact, I'm more alive than I've ever been before, but it's not my life anymore. It's his life. That's what Paul's talking about here. Paul is telling us that he has handed the keys of his life over to God. He has died to self. He is a slave of Christ. He is a captive of Christ. God is now in the driver's seat 
And then we come to the second picture. The second picture that Paul paints here is a picture of perfume or a picture of incense. Look again with me at uh, verse 14, the last half of verse 14. And through us spreads a fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. As mentioned, uh, as mentioned earlier, the burning of incense along the, the victory route, that was part of the Roman triumph celebration. That aroma lingered over those spectators long after the parade had passed. So it is with the fragrance of Paul's ministry. Through his suffering, through his deficiencies, the fragrance of the knowledge of God was being spread everywhere, Paul says. Have you discovered that odors, um, fragrances are, are intrusive? Um, I mean, you could be driving up north, right? Um, enjoying the beauty of God's creation as you wind around all the different lakes when suddenly you get this, this distinct scent of a, of a skunk somewhere has been done his stuff. You know, somewhere along the road, and it kind of takes you back. You want to get through it as fast as possible. We have this neighbor, um, you know, three doors down from ours, um, who Becky and I fondly refer to as the meat guy. I mean, we love the meat guy, Eric. Um, uh, he owns this, this large meat smoker, um, and whenever he is smoking his meat, I got to tell you, there's a wonderful and distinct aroma that just wafts, you know, over the block. <laughs> and everyone on our block can smell it when the meat guy is cooking. And we all come out, <laughs> see if we can pick some meat off. So it is when your life bears the crushed fragrance of suffering in and in and and inadequacy. As God, see, led Paul in a triumphal procession, the fragrance of God wafted over the ancient world. And do you notice the word Paul uses at the very end of verse 14? The knowledge of him everywhere. Everywhere Paul went. In Ephesus, in Troas, in Macedonia. And later on, you know, as you read through the book of Philippians, you discover that even into the imperial palace, wherever Paul went, this aroma was experienced. It couldn't be shut out. And I want you to notice something about this aroma. It was, uh, had a, both a vertical and a, a horizontal dimension. We, we are the aroma, he says, of, the, uh, of, of Christ to God. In other words, in his suffering, the fragrance of Christ, the smoke of Christ's sacrifice rises up to God. That's the vertical. But the aroma also has an effect on the people who heard the gospel. Think again of that parade. The smell of the incense would would carry with it an aroma of life to those who were celebrating the, the victors, right? At the same time, the aroma to those captives, to those slaves, 
would have the smell of death. Likewise, he says, the message of Christ that we share to those who receive it and believe it, it, it's the fragrance of life. But to those who reject it, it's the odor of death. To those um, who are on that road to destruction, the gospel is a noxious fume that carries with them, uh, that carries them to the death. But to those on the road of salvation, it's the welcome as the fragrance of a compelling perfume. Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary, he once prayed, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a mile post on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. That's Paul's prayer. Of course, hidden in Paul's picture is this question for all of us. How do you react to Paul and his message? See, Paul was a fork on the road. In his gospel message, the cross of Christ, is that a sweet-smelling scent to you? Or is it a fragrance of death? to you? That's a question Paul asks. So then Paul asks the question there at the end of verse um, uh, 16. You see this? Who is sufficient for these things? Who is equal to such a task? (laughs) And he answers his own question down in chapter 3, verse 5. Do you see this? Look with me down there. It says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. See, here, I suggest, is that surprising secret of Paul. The glory doesn't lie in our inadequacies. No, the glory lies in the adequacy of Christ that we discover in our inadequacies. If dependence upon God is the objective, then my weakness becomes an advantage (laughs) because it drives me to depend upon him. I don't have to recoil when it comes to my inadequacies. Instead, I can rest in God's sufficiency. My weekly email that I sent out um, this past Friday I included a favorite quote of mine from the famous English preacher, John Stott. If you read that email or if you didn't, I want to tell you that quote again because it's powerful. John Stott said this, we cannot save souls by ourselves, whether by our own personality, our own persuasion, or our own rhetoric. It's a quote... I got to tell you that I remind myself each Sunday morning before I get up here at this pulpit and preach. It's not about me. It's not about how well I speak or, or if I have three great points, you know. 
Now, if God can use a stutterer like Moses, <laughs> if God can use a denier like Peter, he can also use me with all my flaws and weaknesses and inadequacies, and he can use you as well. I know that in our modern age of self-achievement and the drive for success, that we find it almost impossible that God would rather use our inadequacies and, and, and suffering to manifest his uh, power and glory. We, we always think, well, God's going to use the big show. And deep down, we're, we're still convinced that, you know, if I just work hard enough, if we just have enough faith, we can overcome our weaknesses and we can beat the adversity around us. We believe, you know, that, that the true Christ followers, that we should not have an ugly past or a shaky present or an uncertain future. <laughs> we think we won't need to endure the kind of health problems and the heartaches that our neighbors know all so well. And yet, from Paul's perspective, the dominant characteristic of those who he uses, that God uses, is a confident, those who have a confident assurance that God will put his glory on display through their weaknesses. Our usefulness to God is in our inadequacy, not in our success. Are you willing to die to yourself? To be a slave to Christ? To embrace your weaknesses and suffering and inadequacies because you know that it is there in that place that the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ wafts to the end of the earth? Samuel Rutherford in his journal wrote one time, be humble, walk softly, down with your topsail. Stoop, stoop, it is a low entry to go in to heaven's gate. So once again, my invitation to you this morning is simply this, stoop. Are you willing to stoop, stoop low? Might we at the core of our being trust our Lord's word when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray. God, thank you. <laughs> thank you that you use our, our weaknesses, you use our inadequacies for your glory, to put on display your wonder and power and majesty. God, indeed, might we depend upon you. Might our inadequacies drive us to complete 100% dependence upon you and all that we do and all that we say. Say that we pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen.